and welcome to Pass It On. This is a podcast in which lecturers on the Literature Programme at York St John University will talk about their research interests and activities to give you a flavour of the kinds of work they're producing and the ideas that fascinate them. And as well as talking about their own work, they're going to ask their colleagues questions about their work, so we'll be learning more about what our team is doing alongside you, the listeners. I, Dr Adam J. Smith, Senior Lecturer in 18th Century Literature. And I, Dr Joe Wars, Senior Lecturer in 19th Century Literature. Will be your guides on this journey into the literary research at York St John University. Our second interview is with Senior Lecturer in English Literature, Dr Fraser Mann. Fraser Mann is a familiar face in the corridors of York St John because he studied there for his BA back when it was the College of Ripon and York St John. He taught in FE for a while before returning to YSJ as a doctoral candidate studying the literary representation of masculine combat experience in 20th century war narratives. He now works on literary responses to the First and Second World Wars and the Vietnam conflict. He focuses on the anxiety existing between ideological representations of masculinity and the graphic truth of experience in terms both of the corporeal and psychological self, and is fascinated by the relationships between American myth, masculine identities and the material world. He also works with American Memoir and the Autobiographical Voice, and he works with colleagues from the York Centre for Writing, examining how these ideas play out in contemporary music memoirs written by key figures from American punk and indie scenes. Asking the question will be the last episode's interviewee, Dr Jean Bradbury. Fraser. Good morning, Janine. <laughs> um, this is lovely to be able to talk to you about your research and just have a catch up with you, really, about what you've been working on, mo- like kind of more recently. And I think your journey to your academic career is quite unique, I think, compared to other people perhaps within our team. So, my first question for you is can you tell us a little bit about your journey towards doing your PhD? What brought you to that particular project? both in terms of its themes and kind of the text you were looking at, but also you had this whole other career before you became um, an academic, a career that's adjacent to what you're doing now, but but different in many ways. Yeah, so I, it's really hard to sort of pinpoint like epiphanies or moments that I knew I was going to do a PhD. I, I finished, I thought I'd finished with academia last century, actually. I finished my master's degree in 1999 and... I was like a lot of people after a master's degree. I was absolutely done with academia and and work. And I I left. I was living in York then, and I moved to London and um, did lots of London things in my twenties. Um, and then and taught in further education for eight or nine years. And uh, I really I really enjoyed it. It was very very stressful. Um, it's a tough job teaching in a London FE college, and the Challenges became quite wearing, um, and after, and as I was teaching an academic subject, that bore the brunt of that funding being slashed. So we used to have money to go on trips to help students from widening participation areas apply for university. All of that vanished, um, and in 2010, when it was looking likely that there would be a change in government, that's when I decided to try something else. So I was genuinely exhausted by the whole thing then, and I enjoyed always enjoyed while I was teaching, researching for teaching. So I worked on Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood with my A-level group. And 
just found it really rewarding to sort of take unusual angles on, on how to explore that particular novel. And because it's a, a novel based on a real historical incident, um, it meant that I could look at what other people had written about this character, Grace Marks, this Canadian murderer, um, and, um, you know, how people, how other people had written about relationships between aristocrats and servants, how Canada saw itself at the, in the late 19th century. And I sort of guess I got interested in research because it was such a useful tool for teaching, which I know is the other way around to a lot of people, but it, it really just opened things up and, and it, was, it was quite successful and the students were successful. And the person I shared my office with um, at the Further Education College said, you should really think about doing a PhD. She'd done one um, and found it very rewarding. She's now a yoga teacher, so take from that uh, what you will. And um, that, that kind of sowed the seed. And like I say, when, when I got to kind of the end of my rope for Further Education, I thought, well, let's kind of give it a go and moved back to York, started the PhD um, in the autumn of 2010. So yeah, it was quite a, a long way around. I mean, I'm a teacher first, rather than a, a researcher first, I would always say. I really like that idea that you've highlighted about, about research taking place outside of higher education. I think some of the most dynamic, exciting, useful, fruitful, valuable, impactful research actually takes place beyond higher education. Um, it's really interesting to hear the kind of relationship between the two. Can you tell us more then about what, you, what your original kind of first big research project was then in, in the, the PhD? Yeah, so I, I mean, the thing I'd, I'd enjoyed when I was an undergrad and when I did my master's degree was kind of mid-century American writing. Um, in particular, kind of uh, figures like Kurt Vonnegut and um, Joseph Heller and Norman Mailer. Um, I, I just found that, I guess, that kind of um, northeastern wry intellectualism just really interesting. I mean, Kurt Vonnegut in particular, I'm, I'm still a huge hero worshipping uh, Kurt Vonnegut merch uh, in my in my office. My my COVID mask is a Kurt Vonnegut mask and and so on. And I, I, I carried on that interest even while I was teaching. So like my reading for pleasure was always um, that. And, and when Kurt Vonnegut died in, in 2007, I was sort of genuinely heartbroken at the thought of no new Kurt Vonnegut writing. So the, the PhD originally was going to be about Kurt Vonnegut. Um, but I, it, when I was sort of formulating the proposal and, and speaking to um, uh, Dr. Roger Clark, who I had worked with when I did my MA, who sadly died um, earlier this year, he was uh, a wonderful teacher and, and mentor. Um, and he said, actually, you might want to kind of think about this thematically, because what Vonnegut does is evident in a lot of other writers as well. His kind of take on, on American life, on the middle classes, and on these strange competing iterations of what it means to be an American citizen and an American masculine citizen in particular. Um, so I hadn't really ever thought about studying masculinities. Um, but I, you know, that when, when I had that conversation with Roger, it, it felt as uh, it kind of really opened my eyes and I started to read people like Michael Kimmel, who have this really interesting take on America as a country that really foregrounds masculine paradigms um, in its kind of hegemonic myths and identities. And it, it felt like reading and problematizing American masculine myths was a way to read and problematize America um, and to undo quite a lot of the kind of damaging singular ideas about what it means to be America, which of course exclude 
all sorts of different marginalized groups and, and always have done. And, and, you know, when we look at the Trump presidency, they tried to do that again. So it feels as if, you know, studying masculinities is a way to kind of study and break down a lot of the problematic aspects of American culture. And I hadn't realized that, you know, Veronica and, and Joseph Keller and so on are, are doing that all the time. You know, they're, they're taking this very satirical look at some of the pomposity and, and dishonesty that comes with American values. Um, yeah, so that, that, that was the proposal, was to study American masculinities. In, and I think the writers I, I suggested in the proposal were Vonnegut and Heller and Allen Ginsberg and Hunter S. Thompson. But uh, <laughs> um, Ginsberg and Hunter S. Thompson didn't make it into, a, into the final project. Um, it, it just felt they were all a bit too similar. And um, at the interview, it was suggested that I try and go for some people who, uh, you know, come from a slightly different political and ideological background. Heller and Vonnegut are basically the same. So they suggested people like Hemingway and, and Mailer, um, James Jones, Tim O'Brien. Yeah, that, that was kind of how it got to that point. So the, the, uh, I was accepted onto a PhD with this kind of general title of masculinities in mid-century American literature. And almost within the first month, uh, I realised that they'd all written war novels. Um, and I, this is the weird thing. I'm not really interested in military history at all. Uh, you, know, it's the, you know, it makes me reach for the television control when I see kind of uh, what I always uh, call, you know, war porn on the telly. I'm not really interested in, in, um, in glorifying it. I find some of it really problematic. I think Britain is, and America are far too nostalgic for wars that most people haven't lived through. And um, I, I wasn't really interested, but there was just something about if I'm going to read American culture through these masculine paradigms, what is more central as a masculine paradigm than conflict? Um, and, and it kind of, you know, it appeared that if I wanted to do this study in a kind of coherent fashion, that this war literature, which is mostly anti-war literature, as we said, you know, this isn't Bravo to Zero stuff, you know, this is, is how, how dreadful the experience of war is when compared to the ideology. That, that really kind of seemed like the right approach to take. So it, it was, it's odd because I'm still not particularly interested in military history. Um, but I, I find reading America through conflict is a way to really kind of get at those foundational myths and start to rework them and, um, and problematize them. I um, was watching University Challenge last night and they had a Hemingway question on, which oh, I got they? right. And I was like, Fraser would be so proud of me. <laughs> they had, they, there was a Hemingway round on Pointless the other week. And uh, I did actually get a Pointless answer on it. So I, I, was, I was very pleased with myself. Um, um, I, when I um, spoke to Anne-Marie for the previous episode of this, we talked a little bit about a pivot that I've made recently in my own kind of research and practice. And would it be fair to describe you as having made quite a dramatic pivot in terms of your <laughs> focus in the yeah, last Yeah, I mean, in, um, in skateboarding terms, I think you'd call this a 180 kick flip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 I absolutely did. I mean, I, I, I have since the PhD published a couple of things that, that came out about on Hemingway in particular. I'm still really interested in Hemingway. But the yeah, my, my sort of research focus now is on music writing. Um, and a lot of that is American. So you know I, the, the interest is still in, in American writing, um, but it's it's a very different aspect of American writing. And I um, I guess the other connections to the PhD is I'm really interested in life writing and the, the kind of war not they were novels but they're kind of thinly veiled autobiography in, in most cases. Certainly Slaughterhouse-Five is, is following its autobiography and, and Catch-22 is Heller's and A Farewell to Arms is, is, is 
anyways, own experiences of the First World War. So that, that I, you know, memoir and life writing were, were always there as an interest. And um, music itself has been my obsession since I was, uh, you know, like 13, 14 and started buying records and believe it or not, grew my hair long and, you know, rebelled and um, got into uh, going to gigs and a bit later going raving. Um, and I've always collected records and I've always read about music. I'm fascinated by musical culture. And I hadn't actually, I hadn't really thought that it was a legitimate area for academic inquiry. And uh, it was really a kind of moment of serendipity um, that I shared an office, in fact, with you as well, um, with Rob Edgar. And Rob is the same as me. He loves music and collects music. And we kind of had this roundabout conversation and said, oh, have you read, you know, Kristen Parrish's um, memoir? Have you read? Tim Burgess's book, and, and we started talking, and we realised there was this real boom in books being written by artists that had come out of post-punk and punk and, and indie, and that they, they were more and more strange, these books. They were really the um, kind of artistically huge. They weren't a kind of tell-all, warts and all. They weren't shocking in the revelations. They were very self-conscious pieces of literary creativity. Um, and so we kind of thought, well, there might be something in this. And we, uh, the, the conversation started to involve our colleague, uh, Dr. Helen Pleasance, who is an expert in life writing and creative nonfiction and a massive music fan too. Um, and pretty soon we decided that actually there's probably something in this. And we thought, well, this might be something we could do as an edit edited collection because Rob knew some people, I did, Helen did that were kind of also interested in this, but hadn't really thought about it as legitimate academic um, inquiry. So that was kind of what spawned it. It was, it was serendipity, you know, it was, it was a, a casual conversation. I think you know, it's probably about the charlatans or the wedding present or, or something like that. And, you know, it, it kind of came out of that really. Um, and we then put together a proposal, which took a long time. Um, proposals for edited collections are a bit like herding cats, you know, you, you rely on lots of people to do things at, <laughs> at the right time. And um, thankfully, um, Bloomsbury, who Rob had published with before, were immediately very interested. Um, and the peer review that when we finally submitted the proposal was wholly positive, except for one person who said, um, as, a, as a, a, a musicologist at Yale, I don't think this is uh, something I would put on my reading list. And I'm pleased to say that book's now in the library at Yale. So um, Yarboo sucks uh, to that particular person. <laughs> um, yeah, and it kind of went from there. And of course, your own, your own chapter um, on Grace Jones and her kind of strange cyborg writing um, is, is in there too. And um, it's kind of, spiral, uh, kind of spiraled from there. You know, it's been a real springboard and we now have a real pretty big network of colleagues, uh, both in the UK and internationally, and also practitioners, people who've been in bands, people who have been um, in the music industry, all having a go at writing as well. So, you know, we've got a bit of a network that's grown out of this single conversation that happened over a cup of tea in an office, what, four or five years ago. So yeah, it's, um, I know it's really exciting. It means that I can kind of write about the thing that I'm really passionate about. You know, it's, it, it means that thinking about it, it's, it's not, doesn't feel like work. It feels like, um, I don't know, I'm writing about my hobby almost, um, which is, it's, I, I know how lucky and privileged I am um, to be able to do that. And it means I'm always motivated because 
music never sits still it's all something new to write about and, and need to work on yeah and we've talked about that before haven't we kind of um in conversation we've said you know refinding or rediscovering or reigniting the kind of joy in the research yeah. process is such an important thing especially after you've worked on quite a, a, a big substantial um quite i suppose formal project like a PhD that comes with its own set of conventions and expectations and hurdles and hoops and um, to actually just tap into the reason why I think most people get into academic research in the first place is is so vital so it's really exciting that you've been able to do that. And, and the writing itself is very different because it, it's we have this sort of new methodology where we're trying to combine creative work with, with critical work um, and break down some of some of that formal expectation around academic writing that it, you, you must be almost kind of robotically objective all of the time and, and it's impossible with music you know listening to music is such a subjective experience that we're, we're trying to put ourselves into it and you know we commission creative non-fiction as well we uh, commission scholarships that, that but we encourage our authors to put a bit themselves into it to reflect on their their role as fans or musicians or practitioners um, and, and actually, I found that really freeing. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to say that I've kind of abandoned the important rigours that are there in scholarship. And, and you know, I, I, I still am in favour of those things. But it's more the kind of um, stylistic freedom that you get when you go, oh, actually, I am a real flawed human being. And I can show that um, in the writing. And I can, I can celebrate that subjectivity and those sensory responses to the material um, in that writing. And, and I, I, there, are, there are very few people kind of taking this approach to music writing. So we kind of found, found a gap almost. Um, and, but, and, and you realise more and more that lots of people are interested in, in doing this, but it just sort of took a, it took a kind of leap of faith almost with the music memory and memoir proposal um, to, to do that. So if I had to ask you now which kind of piece of research or project or... Um, yeah, piece of work that you've done that you're most proud of, what would your answer be? Well, I think it would be our conference. Um, we, alongside the publication of Music, Memory and Memoir, we hosted a conference at York St John that we, um, <laughs> it had a joke title for a long time, which it then became its actual title, which was the Happy Mondays inspired term, Twisting My Memory Man. Um, which even when we came up with it, we were like, that's so terrible that we had to not actually use that. But it got nearer and nearer to the conference and we actually just couldn't think of anything better than twisting my memory man and um so it stuck and it was a conference in which we again a bit like we do with our writing we try to break the rules a little bit of a conference so as well as music and literature and creative writing academics we had um uh musicians came along as keynotes we had um, undergraduate students talking about their own experiences of music. We had a DJ at lunchtime. We had some musical performances. Um, we did it in the SU because there's a bar and you wanted it to feel more like a kind of music venue. Um, and it was it was truly exhausting. Um, hosting a conference is not something I would do every year. I mean, it, it left us all, all three of us, Helen, Rob, and I, kind of dead on our feet afterwards. But it, it was a real, genuine kind of coming together of, of people who love music and love writing about music and you know it gave us a chance to meet some of our heroes as well one of our keynotes was tom ingley from the inspiral carpets who has written a memoir carpet burns and he came and did a q a and played some inspiral carpets songs and somewhere in the distant past 14 year old me was going you what you met tom Hingley from the inspiral carpets and 
Um, and Rob was the same. We invited Cards, um, an indie band from Leeds, who Rob is the sort of uber fan of. And Rob did the Q and A, and you know, you could see again, sort of teenage Rob going, "I cannot believe I'm speaking to Cards." We had Julianne Regan from All About Eve. We had the stupendous uh, music writer Lucy O'Brien, who came and, and did Q and A with us. And it was that moment really where we thought this is big. You know, the, the, there are people who have travelled from all over the country um, to come and share their ideas. We realised there was a lot of commonality between the papers and that musical experience is absolutely identity forming. Um, and that writing tries to capture that is always interesting. Um, and, in, and lots of the people that, that came to that conference who we only met for the first time, we're now in regular contact with and, and, and are writing for our next book. And, um, you know, we meet up with now and again, we talk to on Twitter, we have Zoom meetings with them. So, you know, I, I'm not, I don't like the term networking and I absolutely hate having to do networking. And at conferences, I usually hide in the corner with a cup of coffee. Um, but actually this one, it was, it was really joyous. The weather was really nice. It was really creative and, and it genuinely felt like a kind of big moment in, in, in both the work we were doing, but also personally, you know, in, in my career. And I got to wear a t-shirt with the name of an indie band on it at work, which, you know, for me is huge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I just hugely applaud the work that you're doing and kind of encouraging people to come together and kind of cross boundaries and transcend boundaries. I was talking a little bit to Anne-Marie about that and I just think it's such a powerful thing and it's and it's also such a bizarre thing for academics to sometimes, you know, conform to all boundaries while writing about how other people are so kind of <laughs> doing all this yeah. really exciting thing. And, you know, it's not for everybody, I don't think, but if, yeah, I think, you know, if there's one message maybe to come out of this particular conversation, if anyone's kind of thinking about it, would be to, you know, think about ways you can take those risks. And also, I'm, as I'm speaking, I'm thinking, I'm wondering if we both felt able to take those kind of um, risks with experimenting with form and, you know, um, genre and all of that kind of stuff because where we've got to in our careers. And I think it's really important that we think about ways that we can extend those opportunities to people who are less risk averse, you know, mm. right from undergraduate level all the way through to kind of PhD students and, and kind of nurture that, that culture. I'm conscious our conversation on this occasion is coming to an end. We'll have many more in the future, I'm sure. But I'm just going to throw a wild card question in there, Fraser. Um, I've not I've not run this by you. That's okay. I, I wondered whether you might recommend something really cool for us to read or listen to. Is there an album you bought, some vinyl recently, or a book, a music memoir, something that you've read recently that you're like, this is really amazing? Yeah, I mean, the... I. It is, it is a lot better than this sounds, I promise. Uh, Tracy Thorne, who is um, a long-time um, uh, musician, songwriter, um, she was in um, Everything But The Girl. Yeah, she was uh, did vocals on uh, Massive Tax Protection album, and she has become a bit like Patti Smith and Kristen Hirsch um, and Viv Albertine. She, she's now as esteemed as a writer as she's as a musician. And her second book is called On Another Planet, um, and it's about how boring it is growing up in the Hertfordshire suburbs. Um, and uh, as someone who grew up uh, in the Hertfordshire suburbs, although she grew up even more, so she grew up in Brookman's Park, which um, compared to St Albans, where I grew up, is, you know, like a, a tiny village. In fact, in the book, she describes St Albans in these really glamorous terms and says, you know, when I was 15, I went to St Albans for the day to buy jeans. And I was like, oh my God, your life must have been awful if you thought St Albans was, was glamorous. 
Um, but she, it, it's fascinating because she basically revisits her teenage diaries um, and, and, and talks to them. Um, and she kind of tries to almost analyse what she must have been thinking as she wrote it. She self-censors and says these bits of these diaries I'm absolutely not going to include. Um, she talks about how kind of forgotten she felt as a teenager growing up in this in this town. She talks about her mother, who had always lived a suburban life and, and had been a really kind of creative figure when she was younger, but had that kind of almost trodden out of her by the kind of pre-second wave feminism expectations of motherhood um, um, and suburbia. It's very funny. Uh, it's um, sad in places. Um, and, you know, for those, if there's anyone interested in kind of creative nonfiction, it's very self-conscious about the process of, of writing yourself. And, uh, yeah, like I say, if, you know, if you've grown up in a suburban place anywhere, um, and, you know, when you're interested in music, music tends to be about, you know, cosmopolitan places like London, Manchester, Bristol, New York, Berlin. Nobody talks about crap places in Hertfordshire, um, and this book does. So, um, I, yeah, I just found it really kind of inspiring and funny and beautifully written. And, you know, like I say, it really spoke to me as someone, you know, I'm a bit younger than Tracy Thorne, not much younger, but I really recognised what she was going through as, you know, someone growing up basically with three telly channels and, 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 not, and a second-hand bike and not much else to do, really. So, yeah, Tracy Thorne, I would, I would always recommend um, that, that particular book. There, there are many, but um, that's, that's one recently that's really that sounds great. I, I've always wanted to say this. Maybe we could put those in the show notes for today's podcast. I always yeah. love the idea of show. I don't even know if we have show notes. If we have them, maybe we could get it added. Um, thank you so much for your time, Fred. It was a pleasure to listen to you speak about your research, which you're clearly so passionate about and invested in. And I always learn so much from speaking to you. So thank you. Thanks, All right, then. Bye. Mm -hmm. you for listening to this installment of pass it on a words matter podcast if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more please let us know by rating and reviewing us on your podcast platform of choice or you could give us a yell on twitter using at ysjlit if you'd like to hear more about life and the literature program at york st john university be sure to check out our blog words matter where you will find news and commentary written by students on the literature programme. And if you'd like to find out more about studying literature with us, either as an undergraduate on our English literature programme or a postgraduate on our MA in Contemporary Literature, be sure to visit our programme pages on the York St John website, yorksj.ac.uk, or again, drop us a line on Twitter using at YSJLit. In the next instalment, Fraser Mann will be interviewing Dr Alexander Beaumont, Senior Lecturer in Literature and Politics at YSJ, whose research is organised around the intersection of politics and spatiality, primarily in British cultural production of the period 1945 to present. This episode of Pass It On was produced, presented, written and edited by Adam Smith and Joe Waugh in association with the Literature Programme team at York St John University. It's finished. It's finished.